That's right. That's my secretary. John chapter 12 is where we are. And um, I'm going to give you the little backstory here. We are um, at the end of Jesus's public ministry in John chapter 12. Um, and so he gives one last sort of climactic appeal to the Jews to believe. And in that appeal, he's going to summarize his whole ministry. He's going to summarize the gospel in these verses. Um, and um, he just made his triumphal entry earlier in the week. We covered that. Um, and that was on the precise day that was predicted. Um, and so some Greeks have asked to meet him. We talked about that last week. So we're going to learn more about the unity of Jesus with his father um, this week. And, um, and that his words are going to be what judges unbelievers ultimately. Then in chapter 13, we're going to look at Jesus washing feet and Judas going the other way and betraying him. Anyway, those of you on Zoom and those of you that are here, so I know you're awake, say amen. amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. I see you there, Tom and Renee and Mike. Okay, let's pick it up in um, verse 44 of John chapter 12. Then Jesus cried out, and this is unusual. He usually doesn't shout out like this. He's really speaking, broadcasting almost. Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. And here we see what I spoke of a second ago, the unity between Jesus, the son and God, the father. There is no subject on which they would disagree. Same with the Holy Spirit. They are one in essence, in absolute unity. So he's making an appeal for them to believe by saying, if you think it's okay to not believe in Jesus because you already believe in God, you're sadly mistaken. Because if you believe in me, you believe in the one who sent me. And if you see me or look at me, you're seeing the one who sent me. You're seeing God the Father. If you want to know God, the easiest way to do that is to um, study the Lord Jesus Christ, the way he deals with people, the way he reacts to people, the love, the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy, um, as well as the power. Um, and so it's an astounding claim. And if it wasn't true, it would be absolute blasphemy for a Jewish man to say, the one who sent me is God. If you believe in me, you believe it's the same as believing in God. And if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Um, he's about to say that in no uncertain terms in a, a chapter or two uh, that we'll get to in the weeks to come. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Pretty amazing thing to say. Verse 46, that's where we left off. I have come into this world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Okay, so I've come into this world implies coming from some other world, right? And he did. He came from the, the dimension, we call it, or just the spiritual world where he existed forever in the past as God, the son, he's come to um, this world, not the way normal people do. Yes. He was born as a man, but he comes as the son of God. I've come into this world, into the world as a light. And so he earlier in this book, he said he was the light of the world. 
And so he's, this is kind of a summary of the gospel, the unity of the son with the father, the looking at me as seeing God, the father, he's come into the world from another world. He has come as a light implying what that they need light because they're living in darkness. Darkness is the default condition of every single human being that's born into this world. Um, we're born in sin. We're born in spiritual darkness. That's why we need to be born again, John 3. So he says, I've come into the world as a light that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness, implying that they have been living in darkness prior to his coming. So it you would be a fool to ignore the one who is the same as God. When you see him, you see God. You'd be a fool to refuse light if you're living in darkness. Um, so that's the point of, of, verse, uh, of those verses. Um, uh, the whole darkness idea from birth is the whole idea of original sin, that we're born already sinners. You don't have to learn to be a sinner or teach a two-year-old to sin. They figure it out pretty early. Um, verse 47. Now he's going to talk about his words and how important they are. If anyone hears my words, and that doesn't mean just hear them with his ears with their ears, it means hears them and takes them into account, believes them, acts on them. If anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to the, judge the world, but to save the world. He's about to talk about what will judge them, and it's kind of surprising. So he says, if anyone hears his words, what he's just said, and all of his teaching about him being the only way to the Father, the sacrifice for sin, um, he's saying that uh, if anyone hears those words but doesn't keep them, and that's what's occurring in the crowd. Remember, they've begun to turn on him. The Jews, most don't and won't believe. The same crowd is going to yell, crucify him a few days after this takes place. Um, so he says, if, if people hear my words and they don't keep them, they don't believe them. He says, I don't judge that person. I didn't come to the world to judge but to save the world. The first time he comes, as we know, this two, second coming is still future. First coming, he comes to save, comes humbly as a human being to serve and then to die on the cross and to save. Yes, he does miracles. Yes, he speaks incredible wisdom, controls nature, raises people from the dead. That's all peripheral stuff. The main reason he comes is to die for the sins of the world the first time. He doesn't come as a judge, but there is a judge and that is his actual words will judge them. People, it's true, people think, well, people are judged according to their sin. That's true. But really, the ultimate judgment that comes in Revelation 20, the final judgment, the great white throne judgment for all unbelievers, it all boils down to sin, yes, but the overarching thing is God says, what did you do with my son? If you rejected Jesus Christ, then you're judged for every sin. He is the fulcrum or the, the crux of judgment, the center point of judgment. So he says, I didn't come to judge the world, not this time, he will the second time, but to save the world. There is a judge, verse 48, for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I've spoken will condemn them at the last day. He's saying these words are so important that I'm speaking to you. You'll be judged on the basis of what you did with these words, whether you believe them or not. Uh, pre pretty amazing 
thing um, that he would say his words are that powerful. But the Jews knew that the word of God, the words of God were the thing. He's claiming to be speaking the words of God to be uh, making visible, revealing God. Keep your finger here and go to John chapter one. Just for a second. John chapter one starts pretty amazing uh, in a, a pretty amazing way. The word, which is another term for Jesus, the spoken word of God becomes flesh. Look at verse 14 of John one, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally in Greek, that's the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only meaning God, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has revealed him or made him known. Jesus is the perfect revelation of who and what God is. Okay, go back to John 12 with me. And so... This, this idea of his words judging a person, let me give you an example. If the law says you can't do this, okay, and you do it, and you go to court, although you may think the judge is judging you, the judge is just going to quote the law. Here it is. It says it's illegal to do ABC, which you did. Therefore, just on the basis of the law and the fact that you did it, you're guilty. You can't blame the judge. The judge is just there to make sure that the law is carried out, so to speak. Um, in any case, um, verse 49. Uh, let's see. Oh, last thing, verse 48. The very words I've spoken will condemn them. Notice at the last day, that's Revelation 20, uh, right around 10 or 11, 12 verse, where it's the great throne judgment. Books are open for unbelievers. Every single thing they ever said or did or thought that was against God's will will be judged. But as I said, the overarching principle is, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? Well, I didn't believe in him. Then you're on your own. You're going to pay for your own sins in hell. Oh, I did believe in Jesus Christ. If you did, then all your sins are erased. It says paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ on your page of God's book, and there's no judgment in terms of sin for you whatsoever. That's the last day. Uh, Revelation 20 talks about that. Uh, let's see. So 49, that's the last day spoken of there. Verse 49, for I did not speak on my own, but the father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. What he's saying is I'm not coming up with this Christianity thing, these doctrines, this stuff I'm telling you is all right from God. Just as in the Old Testament, the prophets would hear God speak, and then they would tell the people, thus saith the Lord. This is what God told me to say. Isaiah says it, Jeremiah says it, Ezekiel says it, Micah say, says it, they all say it. So he's saying, I, don't, I didn't speak on my own. There's no difference between Jesus's theology and God's theology. Some people have said, have you ever heard this or thought this? I used to think this. You read the Old Testament and you hear, you read about a God who is so um, zealous and angry when people mess with the Jews and even commands that 
go kill all the Hittites or all the, you know, all those ites. Remember that in the Old Testament? It, some people have said the Old Testament God seems a lot more angry. The New Testament God seems a lot more loving and gracious. Maybe they're not the same. No, it's, believe me, Jesus is very angry about sin and says so. And on the other hand, God is very gracious in the Old Testament. Look at Abraham, the very first Jew, okay? If you really read his life story in Genesis, you find he didn't do that well, but he messed up here and there, but he believed what God said. There we go again with the words, and it was credited to him as righteousness, as if he was totally holy. There's grace in the Old Testament. There's faith leading to salvation in the Old Testament. Okay. I didn't speak on my own. The Father sent me, commanded me to say all that I've spoken. Verse 50, I know that his, that's God the Father's, command leads to, listen, eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. No difference between his message, his being, looking at him is like looking at the Father. In every way, Jesus reveals the Father. These are Jews who think we know God and we don't like you, Jesus. And you couldn't be more wrong. Therefore, they don't know God the way they think they do. They've been going through the motions. Uh, I know that his command leads to eternal life. This is a sim symbol, uh, kind of a um, summary of the whole gospel being spoken here in these verses about his word, about judgment, about being light, about eternal life. It's all there. Um, this is his final appeal to the Jews from here on out. His ministry is pretty much private. Most of the rest of this book is the upper room discourse, chapters 13 to um, 17. Uh, and might be 18. I can't remember. I think it's 13 to 17. Uh, in any case, uh, his command leads to eternal life. The, the command of the Father, we heard twice. Do you remember? At the baptism of Jesus and uh, well, we heard it in the old, in the other books, in the transfiguration. And then we heard it here uh, when Jesus said, glorify your name. And, and God spoke from heaven three times in the New Testament. This is my son, hear him. That's his command. Believe in my son, Jesus Christ. So chapter 12 kind of ends on a very tentative um, thing. By the way, the little lesson for us in um, verse 50 uh, and 49, Jesus is talking about exactly the way God told me to say it, I said it. The lesson for you and I is when we are witnessing to other people, if we're teaching a Bible study, if we're giving a sermon, most people won't do either of those other two things, but you might witness to somebody at work, your neighbor, your sister, your brother, your son, your friend, your parents. It's a very important thing that we don't change anything, that we don't leave anything out. There are churches called seeker-sensitive or seeker-friendly churches that never, ever preach on sin, forgiveness, hell, judgment. Oh, that's just so offensive. We don't want to go there. Until you tell the whole truth of the gospel, you're not going to make true disciples of Jesus Christ, right? 
Before you can want the medicine of the gospel, you got to know that your condition is critical, right? That you need a savior to save you. So we are to say it just the way he says it. The whole counsel of God, don't water it down. There's people on TV that water down the gospel. They dilute it. Uh, initials J-O. Anyway, don't get me started on that. Um, I'll let you figure out who that is. He's on TV and he preaches in Houston. Okay. Chapter three. Did I didn't say his name, did I? Uh, okay. <laughs> Joel Osteen. <laughs> okay. Chapter 13. Chapter 13. And there's many others besides him. I shouldn't pick on him. Um, so chapter 13, we're fast forwarding a couple of days. Matthew and Mark and Luke tell you a lot of stuff that goes on in those few days. John gets right to the upper room, the upper room discourse where Jesus teaches his apostles. Before that happens, they have a meal called the Last Supper. Okay. There's a few scholars that don't think the Last Supper is the Passover meal. I'm not one of them. Most scholars think they eat the Passover meal on Thursday night, a day early, because Jesus knows I'm not going to be here tomorrow night. He's going to die tomorrow. In fact, he's going to be arrested tonight, and he won't be surprised. He knows it. Why does that matter, Joe? I want you to notice, if I knew you're going to be arrested tonight and die tomorrow, you might see Joe freaking out a little. You don't see Jesus freaking out. He's in control through this whole chapter. We're going to look at the um, this meal. John does not go through the whole um, Last Supper the way the others do. He doesn't mention that. He knows those gospels have already been written. John's the last gospel to be written. John's more concerned with the teaching and what happens. He's going to wash feet, and he's going to. We're going to watch as Judas betrays. Jesus. So this is Thursday night. He dies Friday, right while the lambs are being slaughtered for the sacrifice of Passover. Jesus is going to end up dying. So tonight he's going to get arrested. The hour has come for him and he knows it. Um, let's see. So uh, what else do I want to tell you? Uh, yeah, we already talked about that. So he's he wants to prepare his disciples to lead because he's not going to be with them. The word world in these four chapters appears 40 times, world, cosmos in the Greek. Um, so I've entitled this portion, Jesus goes low and Judas goes away. Goes low meaning as a servant. Uh, okay, the roads in Jerusalem and all of that part of the world were not, for the most part, paved dirt, mud. It was a mess. They're wearing sandals. They don't have socks. Um, they, uh, and socks are invented in Boston. Of course, the Boston Red Sox, you've heard of that. Just kidding. Anyway, but feet get really dirty, okay? When someone has a dinner, usually a servant, the lowest type of a servant, would wash the feet, or at least the host would provide a bowl of water, bucket of water, container of water, where you could wash your own feet. All right. Um, let's see. I want to save one fact. So let's just start with chapter 13. Are you still awake? Say amen. Okay, good. And those of you on 
Zoom. I see you there, Terry. Welcome back. And Donna. Okay. Verse one, chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Um, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay, let's look at verse one. This is all background. The first couple of verses are background. So it's that's the time markers just before the Passover festival when Jesus is going to die. Several times in this gospel and in the other gospels, you see Jesus is about to get arrested months, years before this. And it says, and he slipped out of their hands or he disappeared into the crowd. They didn't arrest him because his hour had not yet come. You get the idea that it was destiny for him to die and be arrested the way it's going to happen. He's protected supernaturally, but he knows the hour has now come. He won't be protected supernaturally. He's got to die for the sins of the world. He knows that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, the other world. I love this last sentence. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, could be a double meaning here. The main meaning here is he loved him to the max, to the utmost. He loved him more than you could possibly love human beings, especially because he's God and he's perfect. He's putting up with very much less than perfect human beings like you and especially me. He loved them in the world. How so? Provided food for them, taught them, I think protected them as well. Um, and he loved them to the end. That could be a time marker there. He loved them to the end of his life, the end of their lives. But he loved them to the utmost. Later on in this gospel, Jesus is going to say, greater love has no man that he, than that he lay down his life for his friends. He's going to lay it down tomorrow for them. But John wants you to know he loved his own who were in the world. Now, listen, does that mean he doesn't love the whole world? No, he loves the whole world. John 3, 16, God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. But listen, there are two categories, those who are his own, those who believe and know him, and those who don't. Those who don't do not experience or feel the love of God or recognize that's what it is the way you and I do. When I see the sun shining, when I see the rain and snow we got over the weekend, I say, or the food on the table, I say, there's evidence of the love of God. He's providing for me. He's pro providing for us water and snow and what have you. So many ways we feel it that they don't. We experience in a way unbelievers do not. They certainly don't recognize it. They just think evolution has made it so that there's the sun and the clouds and all of that and the food. Um, so he loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Is that the 12 apostles? Yes. Including Judas? Yes. Is that it? No. He's got other believers. He loved Lazarus, we know, right? And Mary and Martha, all those who believed at that time. Is that it? No. Are you in this verse? Yes. He loves you to the end, to the max. He'll do whatever it takes to pursue you, to protect you, to draw you to himself. Pretty beautiful uh, picture. So now we go from the overarching time and his attitude about love because he knows he's going to the father. This is his last day on planet earth. You'd think he'd be thinking about himself 
Watch how selfless he is, how humble uh, he is. So there's one other time marker you need to know about, and that's Luke 22. You don't have to turn there. When I mention what it is, you'll go, oh, yeah, I remember this. Believe it or not, right before he washes their feet, the disciples, the 12 of them, are arguing with Jesus present about which one of them is the greatest. Is that unbelievable? God himself is sitting at the table and they're arguing over who's the greatest. Now, it doesn't go into the detail of the dialogue. It always makes me wonder, is Peter saying, no, I'm the greatest, or is Peter advocating for, no, I think Andrew's the, someone else, Andrew or James or John or somebody. Regardless, it's absolutely stupid and insane that they are arguing about who is the greatest. That's Luke 22, 24 to 27. You can look it up later. Um, so what he does as a result is, because they're trying to jockey for the highest position they can have. He's about to take the lowest position to teach them a lesson, a sort of a living parable about humility. Uh, pretty amazing that they're arguing about who is the greatest. So um, let's keep rolling. Verse two, the evening meal was in progress. This is dinner. This most scholars feel is the Passover meal because they do, he does make preparations for it in at least Matthew and Mark. I can't remember in Luke. I think he does as well. They get all the food together um, for the Passover meal. He's got to eat it a day early. If it is after 6 p.m. or sunset, technically it's already Friday, but it is Thursday night. The evening meal was in progress. Um, and verse two, the devil had already prompted Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. That's already happened. Judas has already decided, because Satan has been working him probably for years, it's time to betray Jesus. You remember that Judas is the one that complained when Mary broke open a very expensive bottle of perfume and anointed Jesus's feet and head and hands and what have you. Judas complains that that was a waste of good perfume could have been sold and given to the party. Remember that? So um, Satan's already prompted him. Judas sees this isn't going to work out the way I thought. He's already gone to the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and said, if I deliver him to you, what will you give me? And they've worked out the 30 pieces of silver thing. That is predicted in the Old Testament in Zechariah right down to the number, 30 pieces of silver, which will be thrown back into the temple eventually and used to buy a potter's field. Zechariah 9.9, I believe it is. Oh no, that's 9.9 is the donkey, sorry. Um, I think it's around chapter 12. Okay, the evening meal's in progress. I want you to picture the scene. They're in the upper room, this is called. We don't know whose house this is. Somebody has lent them a large room. There's a table there. The table would usually be a low, almost coffee table looking thing, but large enough for this big of a group. There's 13 people there, right? There's no servants. It's a private dinner. The 12 apostles, including Judas and Christ, 13. 
That, by the way, is the reason, one of them, some people think 13 is an unlucky number. Uh, is that true? No. It's true that that's why they think it, but I don't think there's such a thing as an unlucky number. Um, so it's a low table <clears throat> and no chairs. You would lean on your left elbow uh, on the table or next to the table and eat with your right hand. So they're reclining at the table, meaning sort of laying down. The feet are away from the table because they're unclean. I want you to get the picture of what's going on. In that sort of a setting, Jesus is acting as the host. We know from the other gospels, he's the one that breaks the bread. He's the one that gives out the wine and what have you. He's acting as the host. Therefore, where you're seated at the table in, indicates how much honor you have. I'm going to show you as we go that the two seats of honor on his left and on his right are occupied by, believe it or not, Judas Iscariot and John the Baptist. One is the beloved, the other one is the betrayer. Pretty amazing. The table was called the triclinium. Um, sometimes it would be in a U shape so everybody can look across and see each other. Um, we said last week that the the famous Ten Commandments, uh, not Ten Commandments, the famous Last Supper painting um, is just a big straight table and they're all on one side. Wouldn't have been the way it is. There's some people sitting across from others. Um, let's see. So, uh, yeah, we already talked about that. So Judas is about to get his feet washed, even though Jesus knows he's about to betray him. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus knew, very important. John wants you to know Jesus is not a hapless victim who's shocked by what's about to go on. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. All things are in, in subjection to him. Matthew 28 says it as well. Jesus, I want you to notice, you say, why is that in there? The, John wants you to see the contrast. The disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus knows, oh, this is so silly. God the Father has put everything in the universe under his, in subjection to him, uh, under his power. Okay, so that at that second in the universe, and from then on, the most powerful being in the universe is no emperor, no king, no president, no congressman, no billionaire. It's Jesus Christ. Okay, what's your point, Joe? He's the most powerful person in the universe, and he's about to act like the lowest person in the universe. Watch. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. John wants you to see the supreme position Jesus is in, the most powerful being in the universe, and he'd come from God and had always existed with God and knew God intimately and was about to go back to God. Verse 4, the most amazing word is the word so. So as a result of knowing that he was the most powerful being in the universe and was going back to the Father and had known the Father for a trillion years, on, and it was longer than that, with all of that in mind, you're expecting him to say, 
don't you fools know it's me. I'm the greatest, not you and not you and not you. But look what he does. So he said, I'm the great. No, verse four. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. Okay. He is taking off his outer garments and putting a towel around his waist, which was exactly the way a slave would be dressed if he was going to wipe people's feet. A slave or a servant. The towel would be used to cover him, but also to dry the feet that he's going to wash. Okay? So notice that there's not a single wasted word. I'll come back and show you why. Number one, what did he do? He got up from the meal. Okay, the meal was a comfortable place to be and um, a place of rest. He's reclining. He gets up from the meal. It's going to sound like, well, so what? Just listen. Second thing he did is he took off his outer clothing and instead wraps himself with a towel indicating servanthood. With me so far? around his waist. We'll come back to verse four, verse five. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the, his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We got to pause there and look again at verses four and five. Okay, so he dresses himself as a servant right? But before that, he gets up, rises from the supper, leaving the place of rest and comfort, just as he left heaven with his father, a place of rest, comfort, and total bliss being face-to-face with God. He leaves that comfortable position, okay, in heaven. He, um, from the throne of heaven, you could say, and he laid aside his garments. He laid aside, Philippians 2 says, his deity, right? His position and becomes a servant, Philippians 2 says. He, and the position, he, the, the clothing of heaven that he leaves there is replaced by human flesh that can get sick and get injured and can bleed and get weary and die. Dependent servanthood, absolute humility. He takes a towel and girds himself with human flesh. He's ready to work. And this is the incarnation. You've heard of that when God becomes a man. He pours water out in a basin. Why? To drink? No. To cleanse those he loves. He pours water out in a basin, just like he pours out his blood on the cross to cleanse people from guilt. After he cleanses, washes all the feet, we're not there yet. I want you to notice he sits, re puts on his old clothing, takes off the towel, puts his clothing on, and then returns to his position. That's what he's going to do after the cross. He's going to return to his position in heaven, uh, clothed in light, if you will sat down at the right hand of God and all that. Um, so this for them is a shocking thing that he would 
take off the clothes that he had on seamless robe probably remember that they gambled for his garments we could go there we could also go to the fact you've heard me say in this bible study before that garments clothing in the bible are symbolic of one's spiritual listen condition example adam and eve sin in the garden of eden and immediately they know that they are naked right and they cover up the nakedness with fig leaves God comes and eventually covers up their nakedness with um, animal skins. Do you remember that? In, the, in Genesis 3, a more suitable covering for sin. We've said this before. I'll throw it out again to you. That, Genesis 3, is that story of God covering them with animal skins after they had sinned. Hinting at, by the way, the fact that through innocent blood, there would be a more permanent covering for sin. You say, where do you see that? Who sinned? Adam and Eve. Correct. And you could throw in Satan, I suppose. Who didn't sin? Whatever animal they took those animal skins from, right? How do you get animal skins? You go to Macy's and you buy them. No, he has to kill an animal there in the Garden of Eden and give them the animal skins, hinting that by the shedding of innocent blood, there'll be a more covering for sin, uh, a more suitable covering for sin. Okay, we digress. Got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he pours water in a basin, and he begins to silently, there's no record of him saying anything, he just gets up, and I know they're all watching with their mouths open, what is he doing? Silently, he's going foot by foot, by foot around the table, washing each pair of feet and drying them, taking the form of a, the, the work of a servant or a slave. Um, verse six, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In Greek, the way it's worded, it's worded like this. Lord, are you, all caps, going to wash my feet, implying it should be the other way around. Shouldn't I be washing your feet? Remember, none of them are going to volunteer to wash feet. How do I know that? Because they're arguing about who's the greatest. I think it's me. You wash the feet. It's not going to be me, right? So Peter, knowing that he's God, says, are you going to wash my feet? Now, you got to appreciate Peter, right? He speaks and then he thinks, right? You ever heard of ready, aim, fire? You ever heard of that? Peter is ready, fire, aim. Just shoots from the mouth. This seems humble. It's also a little bit arrogant. He's the God of the universe. Are you going to tell him what to do, Pete? Are you going to correct him? Lord, are you going to wash my feet? He recognizes this is something strange about this. Jesus replied, verse 7, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. So what do you learn from that sentence? They'll get more information later. Yes. What else? This is an acted out parable. This is a sermon without saying a word about humility, about servanthood. Jesus elsewhere in the gospel says, if you want to be the greatest, be the servant of all. Jesus, Jesus noticed that there was a job to do 
No one had washed their feet. So he did it. Have you or have I ever noticed at your church? You know, there, somebody should wash those windows. Somebody ought to clean that toilet. I think I'll tell somebody. Maybe because you noticed it, you should do it. Well, that's sort of beneath me. That's sort of manual labor. Is it? How about washing feet? By the way, there are a few denominations, some Mennonite churches, um, uh, and I think it's called Grace Brethren, that consider this the third sacrament, washing feet. What would the others be? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Are those two commanded? Yes. Do this in remembrance of me, Lord's Supper, right? Bread in the cup. Um, baptism, going to all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father. Be baptized, okay? The other command. Is this meant to be a ritual or something that you should be doing at your church? Let's go get a basin of water and find out. No, I'm just kidding. Um, can't wash. Those of you on Zoom, you'll have to do, get your own basin. I can't do it over the airwaves. Okay. Most scholars think this is not a ritual that we're supposed to do. There's a principle that is what we're supposed to do. What's that? Serve others. Be humble enough to take a job nobody else wants in the church, in ministry. Um, humble servanthood regardless of your status. Well, I have more education than these people, or I have a better car. Who cares? You want to be the greatest? Serve. And there are people I will say, and I won't, there's somebody in this room I, I just saw who's here, who just has that servant attitude. And it's wonderful. Um, it's a woman and she's always doing stuff at the church. And I think it's cool. And I won't embarrass her, but anyway, let me give you her initials. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. That was Joel Osteen. I give you his initials. Um, okay, so Peter's point is, you're greater than I am, Lord. I'm not worthy that you should wash my feet. It should be the other way around. He's right about that. Um, so um, Peter, by the way, remembers this lesson the rest of his life. How do you know? Because he wrote First Peter, and in verse four of chapter five, he says, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, just like Jesus. He remembers. Um, so Peter's uncomfortable with this. Are you going to wash my feet? But in a way, he's kind of telling him what to do. He will understand a lot later. I personally think that when Jesus dies and those disciples are together and they start reviewing his life and the words of Jesus, they start, go, especially when he rises from the dead. Oh, this is what he meant. Oh, the, oh. Okay. So is this washing making all of them clean? Is this sort of another baptism? No. How do you know? Because he washes Judas's feet. Judas never is saved, right? He's about to have the devil come into him and go betray the Lord. So this is a lesson about, you can't make it too much more than it is. It's a lesson about humility. Um, okay. But the very fact that, Judas, that Peter is saying, are you going to wash my feet? I'm unworthy and you're worthy of great honor. He's right. But Jesus is going to say, yeah, but that's the point. 
all things are in subjection to me. I'm the king of the universe. And here I am washing feet. This is an argument called uh, from the lesser to the greater, uh, from the greater, sorry, to the lesser. How much more ought we to wash feet or do humble service if he was willing to do it? He's our example. That word's going to come up shortly. So Jesus says, you don't realize what I'm doing now. You'll understand later. You just got to trust me. That's really what is between the lines in verse seven. Verse eight, Peter being a good, obedient <laughs> disciple says to Jesus, the Lord of the universe, no, like you would do a bad dog or a kid that's misbehaving. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. It sounds humble. It's not that humble. God says to do something. The wrong response for you and me is no, God, right? Is he ever wrong? No. Are you? Of course. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. I will not allow it. But by the way, I think at this point, Peter's ego, it has just gone up a thousand points. They were arguing about who's the greatest. They all, these idiots, let Jesus wash their feet. Not me, says Peter. You'll never wash my feet. Ha ha. I'm better than all of you. Jesus answered. I'm still in verse eight. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me, meaning no relationship, no anything. We're not connected anymore unless you let me wash you. Verse nine is pretty funny, don't you think? Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my head and my head, my head and my hands as well. Give me a whole bath then, right? It's cute, but there's also arrogance there. You wash the other's feet, give me the super bath, right? There's still some ego there. Unless I wash you, you have, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my head and my hands as well. Okay, now Jesus is going to explain a principle in verse 10. Listen, Jesus answered. He's answering Peter. Give me a bigger bath. Jesus says, those who have had a bath, past tense, notice. Those who have had a bath, that's the full body cleansing, you with me? Need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you, and you is plural, you are clean, though not all of you, not every one of you. What does he mean by that? Verse 11, for he knew who was going to betray him, that, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Let's take our two-minute break, and then we're going to take those two verses apart. Don't go away. We're going to take our two-minute break so that you can stretch your aging body, and so can you on Zoom. I'm going to turn my video screen and microphone off, and I'll be right back in two minutes. Don't go away. Find your seats, if you will, back there. And those of you on Zoom, welcome back. We are in John chapter 13, and uh, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. The job of an absolute lowest slave or servant would do that. Peter has objected and said, you're not washing my feet. You're, you're too uh, you're good. You're, you're, you're God in human flesh. And Jesus says to him, unless I wash you, you have no part with me.
So the question is, what's going on here? And what is so important about this washing and what it symbolizes? Is it just the humility? No, there's something else going on here. You probably already figured it out because you're smarter than me. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter humorously says, well, then, Lord, wash me from head. Give me a whole bath, right? Um, Jesus answers, those who have had a bath, past tense, need only to wash their feet, for their whole body is clean, okay? He's talking about their spiritual condition. Okay, go with me on this. Listen, point one, he says, past tense, they've had a bath. All of them? No, 11 out of the 12, not Judas. You with me? What do you mean by a bath? I mean, 11 of them truly are saved and believe in him. They're redeemed. They've been regenerated. They've been washed by his words. They believe what he has said. Do they fully understand the resurrection yet? And the no. But they are his, and they've already been washed. Bath. He says, for those that have already had a bath, verse 10, they those people only need to wash their feet for their whole body is clean. Well, wait, I thought you said the whole body is clean. This doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Why don't we just skip these verses and move on? No, I'm kidding. We don't do that. Sometimes I wish we would, but we don't do that. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying this, that there's two types of cleansing, okay? And scholars a lot smarter than me have called the, the two types forensic or legal cleansing and um, and then sort of incidental or family cleansing. The bath, the forensic, the legal cleansing is a one-time event. Spiritually, as a believer, you take one bath. What's the bath? Baptism? No, belief. True faith in God, and you are washed. Your sins are forgiven. Listen, past, present, and future. Okay, Okay, I'm with you. So that's the bath. That's why the 11 are saved and one isn't. That's Judas. Yes. Okay, well, then what's the foot washing? If you're clean, you're clean. We are forgiven all our sins, all of us who are believers, past, present, and future. And yet the world is a dirty place. You mean dust? And, no, I mean sin. And as we go work and deal with other people and get angry with people and act selfishly and make mistakes, we sin. Well, aren't those sins forgiven? They are. But we are to do, we're going to look at it in a second, 1 John, same author. 1 John 1.9 is the Christian's bar of soap. You're already forgiven for your sins, but to maintain that fellowship, when you realize you've sinned, we are supposed to, listen, Confess our sins to God. Confess your sins to God means you, re, you agree with God. What I just did was wrong. I recognize it. I want to tell you, I know that's what it was. I'm sorry. And I turn from it. I repent from it. Um, keep your finger here and go to 1 John. That's right before Revelation. A couple books before Revelation, four to be exact. So from Revelation... Find Revelation at the back. Take a left. 
Jude, third John, second John, find first John, or it says one John. Um, okay, verse nine, the Christian's bar of soap. This is a good verse to memorize. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from some unrighteousness. Is that what it says? All. That is every day ongoing. As we sin, we confess to God, I'm sorry for that thought. I'm sorry for what I said to that person. I'm sorry for what I did. In some cases, you have to confess it and turn from it. And in some cases, if I said something to Boyce that was very cruel, I've confessed it. I'm good to go. The right thing to do is for me to get alone with Boyce and say, you know what? I'm sorry for what I said to you. It wasn't right. It was sin. I've already confessed it to God. I'm asking you to forgive me. It's not just you and God. Remember, there's the vertical you and God and the horizontal you and other human beings. And so we need to make it right. If I stole $100 out of his wallet and he doesn't know, I can confess that and the matter's dealt with with God. But the proof that I'm sorry is I go to him with $100 and go, I stole this from your wallet and I'm sorry. So although we are forgiven, we get dirty day to day in the sins that we commit. It's very important to keep short accounts with God, confess our sins. That's foot washing. Okay. He's saying, you've already had a bath, Peter. You don't have to worry. He's really telling Peter, although you're still going to mess up, Pete, you're saved. You're redeemed. You're mine. You've already had a bath past tense. Um, let's see. Um, what's this point about, uh, uh, unless I wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. You have no connection with me. If we don't accept his humble service, on the cross, not with the feet. If we don't accept what he did, then he has no relationship with us. That relationship is fed and continued by our continual wanting to confess to him when we sin. And the goal, of course, is to sin less and less. Aren't you glad he didn't say, um, unless I wash you, you have no part of me? part with me. What if he said, unless, you, uh, unless you're a Bible scholar, you have no part with me? I'm glad he didn't say that, right? Uh, there's so many other things he could have said. All he says is he wants to be able to wash you on a daily basis, um, continuing the fellowship. Um, okay, so verse 10. Those who've had a bath, those who are saved, need only to wash their feet, continually confessing their sins. Their whole body, their soul is clean. And you are clean. He's talking to the 12, 11, sorry. Not every one of you, though, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. That's hinting at what the discussion is going to come just a few verses after this. Because if you're one of the 12 and he says, you're clean, well, not all of you. Aren't you starting to look around and go, what does he mean? Who does he mean? How many of us? Um, not every one of you is clean. Well, that's kind of a shocker, but it's left just kind of hanging out there for now. But he knows who's going to betray him. That's why he said not everyone's clean. Okay. When he's done, verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, 
He put on his clothes. Remember, he goes to heaven and takes the right hand of God, the seat there, glorified forever. He put on his clothes and returned to his place at the table, also in heaven after the real washing, which takes place on the cross. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Now he's back to being looking like a teacher again, like a rabbi, like their Lord, like their savior. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. No answer. He's going to answer. That's what he wants them to do. Do you understand what I've done for you? What's the obvious answer? Yeah, you washed our feet. That's not it. Don't think physical, think spiritual. Do you understand what I've done for you? Verse 13, you call me teacher, which is the word rabbi, Lord, which is the word kyrios in Greek, and rightly so. That's what I am. I'm not just your teacher. Notice I'm your Lord. Lord means boss, one high above me. Lord means master. When he says, do this, do A, I don't do B, I do A. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, that's what I am. By that way, that word for Kyrios, for Lord in the Old Testament is the same word when we talk about God the Father. Okay, another evidence, he's trying to let him know he's God. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Verse 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have done something only a servant would do, washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Who are these guys? The guys that 10 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago, were arguing about, I'm better than him. I'm the greatest of the apostles. Do you remember in one of the other gospels, I think it's Luke, um, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus. Do you remember this? And, he, and she says, will you do something for me? And he says, well, what do you want? Would you permit my two boys to sit on your left and your right at the positions of honor in your kingdom? She's basically saying, will you make them vice president and secretary of state or speaker of the house or whatever? Nancy Pelosi. Okay. Um, and he says, you know, basically, no. Right. Um, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, done something unbelievably demeaning and submissive to God and humble, I want you to have that same attitude. You also should wash one another's feet. Verse 15. Does he mean literally washing feet? Looks like it in verse 14, not in verse 15. I have set you and what? example that you should do as I have done for you. Here's, here it comes, verse 16. Truly, very truly, I tell you, whenever he says that, it means, listen up, this is really important. Verily, verily, I say unto you, no servant is greater than his master. Okay, this is sort of an idiom. Think about what, that, what he's saying. Is that true? It is. No servant is greater than the guy that's paying him and feeding him right? The guy that who's being served. Those that are served generally are higher than those that are servers. Okay, got the picture? So that's what he's saying. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you're, you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. 
okay? The whole idea, this is an acted out parable for these conceited, arrogant, prideful, puffed up disciples that are arguing about, I think I'm greater than at least those four, and maybe these two over here. He's saying, you're missing the whole point. You want to be the greatest, be a servant. There ought to be in a church a mad rush to do the lowest job available. Is there? Not usually, but there ought to be, right? You and I are never more like Jesus than when we're doing something menial, some task that is sweeping the parking lot, okay? Vacuuming, cleaning. Someone threw up in the bathroom and you go clean it. I don't mean to make you gag, but these are jobs that you kind of think, hopefully somebody else will do that. Go do it yourself. The humble job, even better if you do it and you don't even tell anybody. Because if you do tell people, guess what I just did? Then what are you doing? You're prideful about how humble you are in a way, right? Yeah, I just cleaned all the toilets. Yep, brought my own brush too. Are you, right? I'm patting myself on the back. He's saying, be the one that picks the humble service because if the God of the universe is willing to do it, you ought to, I ought to as well. But there's more. You ever see those guys on TV that are selling? But wait, if you order now, there's more. We'll also throw in a no extra charge, 1-800-GOSPEL. No, listen, there's more. What's he about to do? He's about to do something even more humble than washing feet. He's about to allow himself to get arrested, beaten up, whipped, nailed to a cross, even though he could snap his fingers and send them into the next century, all those people, if he wanted to, talk about being a servant. Well, wait, what, how, who is he serving? You. He's dying for your sins, my sins, right? He is washing us with a bath on the cross. What's the water? His blood, right? He's paying for your sins and mine. That's the ultimate sacrifice. And if you don't think we're called to do that, I don't mean die on a cross, but I mean have that attitude, listen to Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels, that those who believe in him are supposed to do what? Take up their cross and follow him. Oh, like a little cross you wear around your neck. No, cross is a symbol. It's an instrument of capital punishment where they kill the person. He's saying, die to your old self, follow me, serve humbly. So there's so many lessons here. We could spend all night here, but we won't uh, on this whole thing. We've all had the bath, okay? But we need to be washed by him on a daily basis by confessing our sins. First John, we turn to chapter one, verse nine. In Judaism, listen to this, and it'll tie in more, I think. When a priest was being consecrated for service, okay, we're going to make Ken here a priest, and he would be ceremonially washed from head to toe, okay? That's the bath. But from then on, whenever he served in the temple, and he was about to go serve, the bath was a year ago, let's say, he's about to go serve in the temple and do sacrifices, they would only wash his feet, and his hands. 
You say, okay, now wait, feet, I get the feet. Jesus did the feet. Why the hands? Hands are what you use mostly to do stuff. Judaism was a lot of doing, a lot of sacrifices, a lot of ceremonial washings, a lot of things that they had to do. So why no hands? Why doesn't he wash their hands? Because Christianity is not a lot of do, it's a lot, D-O, it's a lot of done, D-O-N-E. Meaning what? There's nothing I can do to save myself with these hands. You don't need to wash the hands, just the feet, symbolically. Why? Because Jesus is the one that did it all on the cross, right? So the, it's a difference between Christianity and Judaism. Um, no doing, we simply look to the cross and believe and are saved. That's how you get the bath, if you will. He took a lower role for their welfare, washing their feet, dying on the cross, same kind of thing. Um, he put aside his own prestige for the needs of others, dressed like a slave, right? He made himself nothing, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Be the kind of person that goes low in service and don't go telling others that you did it. Um, what he's saying is, in essence, well, the world asks this question, how great are you? Let me ask it another way, Harold. How many people work for you? Oh, I have a staff of 13 people that work for me. 28 people work for me. God asks, how many people do you work for? Just the opposite. In other words, how, much, how many people are you a servant to? Um, so many lessons here. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. So we are to have that same attitude, live by that example, that pattern, if you will. Ephesians 5.26 says, Jesus washed us with the washing of water by the word. Ties in with the end of chapter 12. The word meaning the Bible. Okay. Um, let's see. And he ends with verse 17. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So don't be bragging about who's the greatest. Be quietly submissive to one another. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, one of the other epistles says. Um, let's see. By the way, that's only one of two Beatitudes in uh, the Gospel of John. The other one's in chapter 20. We'll get there in 15 years, probably. Okay. Now it's going to get a little shocking. They were already shocked that he washed their feet. Verse 18, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Okay, literally it reads, he who has shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now in that culture, to share bread with somebody doesn't mean here have a piece of bread. It means we sit down at a table together, okay? If I have John and Judy over for dinner, if Sherry and I do, then in, a, in that culture, it meant much more than it's just a meal. It meant there is a mutual trust here. You're sharing my bread. I'm sharing my bread with you. 
and we absolutely trust each other. Therefore, if I betrayed them or worse, if they betrayed me because I'm sharing my table with them, that would be an absolute outrage in that part of the world because the hospitality thing of sharing bread, sharing a table meant trust. It meant absolute um, we're in agreement. We are. It's almost like more than a handshake, if you will. So, um, so this passage of scripture is Psalm forty-one, verse nine. Somewhere in my notes, I have it. Yeah, um, he knows who's going to betray him. Okay, and he's hinting about Judas, obviously. Um, psalm forty-one, nine, is a psalm of King David. Okay, Jesus is supposed to be a son of David, a descendant of David. By the way, he is on mother's side and father's side, the two genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Okay, so what's the connection? This is written about Ahithophel who betrayed David, who shared bread with him. It's considered an absolute abomination that anyone would betray anybody, but much more so if we've just had a meal and now you're going to lift up your heel or betray me or do something to harm me. Ahithophel betrays David and later hangs himself. Sound familiar? Just like Judas, right? This is a principle known as dual fulfillment of prophecy. In the Old Testament, there's all kinds of prophecies that often have a near-in-time fulfillment. David writes about Ahithophel who betrays him, having shared his bread, and then a distant fulfillment, Jesus, betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver. He, he's letting them know he knows. He who shared my bread has turned against me or lifted up his heel against me. He's quoting that psalm. He's saying, you're seeing prophecy at this table about to be fulfilled. Pay attention. That's what he's saying. Um, Let's see, uh, verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am. I know NIV has, I am who I am, and you may have a different translation. In the Greek, it reads, so that you'll believe that I am, which is the divine name of God. You remember from John 8, 58, from Exodus 3, God says, I am who I am you shall tell them I am has sent you. He's predicting the future for them so that they won't think, boy, we never knew it was Judas and neither did he. No, they'll know Jesus knew all along it was Judas who would betray him with a kiss. Remember all that? Um, very truly, I tell you, verse 20, whoever accepts anyone, well, no, we, let's, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'd still need to talk about 18 and 19 a little bit. Judas um, never believed. He didn't have salvation and lose it. Judas never believed. Wait, did Jesus choose all 12? Yes. Even Judas? Yes. For that purpose, knowing he would never believe. Judas didn't lose his salvation. He never had it. Judas was in it for other reasons. Judas was in it for the money, for the prestige. This guy could go all the way and become king of Israel, and I could be I could make some serious money with this guy. Look at the healing power. This is incredible. He never believed. That's why he's so upset when there's an expensive bottle of perfume that's so-called wasted on Jesus one evening in Bethany. 
He's like his real father, the devil. Judas is the ultimate counterfeit. So much so that he fools the other 11 completely. I'll show you that in a second. Um, uh, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15 says, they are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So Jesus is about to reveal there's a traitor amongst us. Okay. So this is another one of those pregnant pauses in the dinner where everybody's looking around going, wow. By the way, we said earlier, most scholars think this is the Passover meal. If you read the other accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find some of the elements of the Passover. We're about to find the little uh, Paschal stew that gets dipped with bread, and he's going to hand it to Judas. We see the wine. There were several cups of wine in a Passover meal. We see the bread. Some scholars, and I don't want to sell this too hard, but I'm going to throw it in at no extra charge if you order now. Some scholars have said, this is the Passover meal, the bread, the wine, the other elements are there. Where's the lamb? Was there a lamb already slaughtered on Thursday? No. Friday is the day they would slaughter the, ram the lambs. Is this the Passover meal where they got a lamb somewhere else and slaughtered it? Maybe. Or is the real lamb of God sitting there at the table so there's no need for lamb? It's a vegetarian meal, in a sense. That's kind of what I think. I'm not going to sell it too hard. Um, I'm not referring to all of you. He means Judas. I know who I've chosen. Verse 18, this is to fulfill a, a prophecy. Somebody that shared my bread of all things, sat at the table with me, is going to betray me. I'm telling you now so that when it happens, you'll believe that I'm God. I'm able to predict the future. I'm able to rise from the dead. Verse 20, very truly, I tell you, and this is a truism for the other 11 and a warning for Judas. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. He's saying, I'm about to give you guys an incalculable high calling to where when you go out in my name to preach the gospel, you 11 and all of us, and someone accepts you, it's the same as accepting Jesus Christ into their home, as the same as accepting God the Father. Jesus, God said a similar thing to Abraham in the Old Testament when he said, whoever blesses you, Abraham, because you're my guy, I'll bless him. Whoever curses you, I'll curse him. You're my guy. He's saying to them, you have an unbelievable calling, and whenever you go out and someone accepts you, they're accepting me. I take it personally if they don't. You want proof? Paul, Saul, on the road to Damascus, do you remember? What's he doing? He's like a bounty hunter. Who's he hunting? Christians, trying to kill them, trying to imprison them. Do you think Jesus took that personally? Totally. How do you know? Because he knocks him off his high horse, right? 
there's a bright light and somebody speaks from heaven. You remember that passage? It's Acts eight or nine. I think it's nine. Um, what does the voice say and who is it? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's going, I'm not persecuting you, whoever you are. I'm, I'm persecuting these Christians. Jesus is saying, yeah, you are. And I take that personally. Whoever accepts them, accepts them, accepts me. If you put a hand on them, I take it personally. You're persecuting me. Jesus is the one speaking, not God the Father in that passage, by the way. So back to, we're all over the map here, sorry. Um, back to verse 20. Whoever accepts you, let's see, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. No difference. You and I have the privilege of carrying the gospel to other people. Don't be surprised if they spit at you and tell you to get lost. That's the majority opinion about Jesus. Let's face it, right? If you witness to 10 people and two receive the gospel and become Christians, that's really good. Don't expect nine out of 10. It rarely happens. Usually the response won't be good. They'll be judged for not accepting you, which means not accepting Jesus, which means not accepting the father. You can't have God without having the father. Um, let's see. He's preparing them for the great commission, which is going to all the world. He's sending them out everywhere. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. You can't take verse 20 out of its context. What do you mean? He's really, really complimenting them. Verse 20, I'm sending you on such an important mission. If they accept you, they're accepting me personally and God in heaven. What's the context? Be humble though. Don't forget to be a servant. Don't let that go to your head. Wash some feet, clean some toilets. Do the humble servant thing in your attitude and, and in your actions. Verse 21, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, there's that phrase again, one of you, and he's looking around the room, there's 12 people in him, is going to betray me. Before this, it's been kind of symbolic language and... He's lifted up his heel against me. He had the bread, you know. You can't get any more plain than verse 21, right? One of you is going to betray me. Here's where, here's what proves what I said earlier, that Judas was such a good counterfeit. They didn't all say, I bet it's Judas. Don't you think it's Judas? Oh yeah, who else could it be? Verse 22, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. They have no idea who is sitting in the position of honor at the table, Judas to his left, who is the one in charge of the money, the, the treasurer, the financier of the group, the controller, right? Uh, of the group. Uh, that's a electronic, I mean, a money term for corporations, Judas. So it can't be him. John is the beloved and on his right, it probably isn't him, but they all have no, they have no clue that he means Judas. Um, 
let's at least dive into this next thing. Verse 21 is like a bomb going off in the room. One of you is going to betray me. What did he say? They're, they have no idea who he means. Verse 23, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is the first time John uses that term for himself. Scholars pretty much all agree the disciple whom Jesus loved is John's way of saying referring to himself. He doesn't mean it in a conceited way. If anything, he means it in a humble way, meaning of all people for the Jesus to love, the Messiah, it's a guy like me, the disciple whom Jesus loved, undeserved love. So one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, was reclining next to him, right side. Um, the other gospels say, that he's going to lean back, and he says it here too, on his chest, on his breast. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, ask him, ask him which one he means. So Simon Peter must be not as close across the table somewhere. Ask him who? <laughs> Leaning back against Jesus, probably whispering, verse 25, he asks him, Lord, who is it? Which one? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Remember that prophecy? Shared my bread. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. It's a way of designating, this is the dude. And they're probably all like holding their breath because he's dipping the bread. Who's he going to give it to? Andrew. They're all like, oh no, is it me, James? And he hands it to Judas, the guy. It's sitting in the seat of honor. As soon as Jesus, as soon as Judas, sorry, verse 27, took the bread, Satan entered into him. Yikes. How did they know this? I mean, is this like his eyes are spinning like the exorcist kind of thing? No. Um, but Jesus knows and can sense it. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Wow. Scholars have debated whether this means took control of him in the sense of demon-possessed or not. It's not demon-possessed. Notice it's not some demon, third string, you know, lieutenant. It's Satan himself. Why would Satan care so much about this dinner? Because the Son of God is there to save people from the curse that he started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. As soon as he takes the bread, Satan enters him. So I love this. Jesus asked him, could you do me a favor? No. Jesus told him, he's in control. What you're about to do, do it quickly. He's sort of saying, you're dismissed. Get lost. I got a lot to tell these guys. Go do it. There's a timing thing as well. It's got to be tonight because tomorrow he's got to die. Go do it quickly. He's commanding him to do it. We're going to stop right there. There's a lot to discuss in those verses. We'll backtrack a little next week. Um, email me if you have questions. Invite other people to the Bible study if you want. Uh, love to have more people here in person and on Zoom. Um, let's pray, and then we'll get out of here, and we'll pick it up next week, God willing. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, time in your word. You have unbelievably done that, loved us to the end.
We feel it, God, because we know you. We see your fingerprints on every blessing. You've loved us to the limit, to the end. We're so grateful. We give thanks to you, not just on Thanksgiving, but every day. Give us that humility that your, your son was talking about, Father. Being willing to serve others humbly, whatever it takes, whatever job in the gospel that might arise, give us humble hearts to be willing to do it as imitators of you following your example. We want to be used by you in your kingdom, God. We know that the more humble service we do, the more useful we'll be to you. So while we have time yet in our lives, help us to live and do all to your glory and to serve you and your kingdom by serving others. Thank you for this time in your word, God. We love you and praise you and worship you. We pray that these truths would change the way we live, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone that you don't know. It's really important. Those of you on Zoom, you can't do that, but I pray you'll call somebody you don't know. <laughs> anyway, we'll see you next time. Have a great rest of the day. God bless.